and welcome to the podcast. I'm Karen Weaver. If you've been paying attention to college sports at all this year, the rise in social justice activism has been unlike any other time in recent memory. As this podcast is being recorded, we are in the middle of the trial of Derek Chauvin, the Minneapolis police officer charged with second-degree murder in the death of George Floyd. Along with so many other tragic events at the hands of police, like Breonna Taylor, there is a sense that current and future college athletes will no longer tolerate universities giving short shrift to athletes' personal concerns over racial inequities, both on campus and in their communities. How can athletes use their voices? My guest today is Dr. Colin Williams. He is an educator, author, and researcher addressing race and other diverse issues through the lens of sports. As a senior director of curriculum, Colin develops, executes, and expands RISE's education and leadership programs throughout the country, collaborating with internal and external partners to identify training needs and strategies. Previously, he worked in social responsibility and player programs for the NBA and as an assistant director of player engagement for the NFL's Baltimore Ravens. Along with Dr. Ken Shropshire, Colin co-authored the book, The Miseducation of the Student-Athlete, How to Fix College Sports. Colin earned his bachelor's degree in sociology and Africana studies and his doctorate in higher education from the University of Pennsylvania. Hey, Colin, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Happy to be here. So you and I have talked a lot about where we are in college sports today when it comes to racial equity but I really want to get your assessment of where we are so that my listeners can get a sense of where we are in college sports today and be straight with them. Okay, okay. Um, I, I think there, there are two ways to think about this, right? I think um, when, when I, the, the first thing that I think of when I hear that question is I think we as a country, um, as of last year, with the series of sort of racial tragedies that we experience um, in conjunction with the pandemic, that sort of force us to keep still, be in front of the TV a little bit more, have to have some of these tough conversations with our kids, our families, our loved ones. I think we as a country are in a better place. I I think we're sort of starting to first, for the first time, really recognize some of the racial injustice that exists and like see it as a real thing, right? So I think overall, some of the tragedy, you know, things have to get worse before they get better at times, um, really sort of help some of that reckoning um, however, um, when I think about some of the sort of longstanding issues, some of the things that still continue to be persistent now, um, we have to recognize that we have a really long way to go, right? So um, I, I'll, I'll use some examples. Um, in, 20, in 2006, my, uh, my mentor, formerly at University of Pennsylvania, now at USC, Dr. Sean Harper, wrote this line that said, perhaps nowhere in higher education is the disenfranchisement of black male students more insidious than in college athletics, right? That was in 2006. In 2012, uh, we did a report that really highlighted some of the black male inequities, right, at Division I college sports. So what that looked at was not just the underrepresentation of black male student athletes um, in, 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 in collegiate, uh, in co- on college campuses outside of athletics, as well as their overrepresentation in revenue generating sports like basketball and football, but also looked at sort of their lower graduation rates, right? So if we're looking at some of those numbers, some of the things to call out, right? If we look at the 65 institutions that comprise the power five, 
Black men were 2.4% of undergraduate students enrolled at those universities, but 55% of the football team and 56% of the men's basketball teams, right? So what does that say about how and why we negotiate their space and their presence on campus, right? Um, then when we look at graduation rates, we had 55.2% of black male student athletes graduating within six uh, years compared to 69% of student athletes overall, 60% of black undergraduate men overall, and 76% of over undergraduate students overall, right? So this demographic, we're graduating at much lower rates than any other demographic on, on campus when you sort of looked at this data uh, disaggregated. Um, what we did with this report was we challenged sort of the NCAA statement that student athletes graduated rates higher than their non-sport peers because that is in fact true when we look at sort of the entire enterprise of college sports. But again, when you break the data down and really get into uh, some, some, some of those demographic differences, we see that for black male student athletes that uh, they, they are really sort of being marginalized in, in this space. So and those, this franchise too, because where's yeah. the voice in the, in the structure of the NCAA, right? Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and for my listeners, if you haven't seen this, this uh, landmark um, research, I'll put a, a link to it in the notes for the show so you can track on it because it's been updated quite regularly. Yeah. So put it 2012, out. then 2016, and then the most recent is uh, 2018. So the numbers I just shared were from uh, the most recent 2018 edition. Yeah, yeah it's important research. And I have, uh, Sean and I have briefly talked about him doing it for Black women as well. Yeah. I think yeah. That's, another, that's another important group. So... One of the things that Karen, if, if, if you don't mind me jumping ahead. in real quick, um, I would be remiss if I said this. Um, when, when we think about this issue, I, I know our focus was on black men. So my, my background in higher ed was particularly sort of how black men and, and male bodies are negotiated in these in the collegiate spaces. I was focused on them broadly before I got into the college, college athletics conversation. Um, and then Sean and I actually went back and forth and we talked about this. Um, what we found, what we sort of see is that black women sort of despite these challenges do a little bit better, right? Um, and we wanted to, as we sort of introduced the topic to the world, really wanted to focus on the place where these trends were most insidious, right? So when we looked at, so black women are a little bit more represented, they perform Form a little bit more sort of narrow that sort of sort of say, hey, look, look at how drastic these differences are and these outcomes are for these populations. And particularly when you match them up with the two revenue producing sports. I mean, exactly. It's, 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 exactly. It's, it's, yeah, absolutely. And maybe we'll get there with women's basketball, but we'd like to do it with a little bit more equity, perhaps. That yeah. would be a good thing, right? Amazing. So you talked about this past summer and, and here in Philly, I mean, we were, uh, we had marches every night for several weeks across the city. Uh, and, and the thing that was most amazing was the fact that the vast majority of people in those marches uh, appeared to be white. Uh, and that, that I think surprised a lot of people, but I think they misunderstood how to use, how uh, Gen Z and younger folks are using their voices so how can today's college athlete use his or her voice effectively to champion racial justice? Yeah, um, when I hear that question, I, the first thing I think about is this is work for all of us to be doing, right? Um, and I, 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 
I, I'm cautious about sort of putting the onus right on just the collegiate athlete, right? Um, so when I think about this, what, what I think about what individuals can do, whether they be college, pro, or high school athletes or non-athletes, right? Um, I, I really think the first step is educating yourself, right? Um, understanding the, the concepts and the topics and really focusing on your sphere of influence, right? So sort of this lofty espoused goal of, of, of racial equity, right? Societal equity and equality um, can sound really daunting. Um, so I, I really wanna start that conversation and have folks think about what can they do at the individual level, right? So one, um, learning how to check yourself, your own biases, perhaps some of your own microaggressive behaviors, right? After doing some of that, that, that education piece and some of that reflection, then thinking about how do you do some of that work and help others in your sphere of influence, right? So if you're an athlete, that might be your teammates, that might be your coach, right? If you're not, that can be just your family and your friends. As an employee, that can be your coworkers, right? But think about the people that believe in you, that trust you, that know that you have their best interests in heart, right? So it doesn't seem as though they're just correcting you or sitting on a high horse saying, you should be better in this way, but like, I care about you. Here are some things that I think that some, here's some growth that I've been doing in, in my own ways. And here are some things that you should think about and consider incorporating, right? And in, into your own sort of life toolkit. Um, and, and then I, I would say beyond that is really understanding the difference between interpersonal and systemic racism, right? Because I think when we think about sort of this, this newer buzz term of anti-racism, right? Um, I, I think many of us, when we hear racism, we think about racial epithets, we think about swastikas, we think about the KKK and sort of this sort of very traditional visible sense of racism. And we don't really recognize and understand what structures and systems and the way that, and ways in which racism has really been built into a lot of our institutions, right? Including college athletics, our colleges broadly, our workplaces, right? Our education systems and all, and all these spaces. Um, and, and once we sort of understand the difference, then we can sort of focus in and hone in on how do we work to dismantle those racist structures that sort of have lingered over our, 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 our country's history, right? Um, and how do we work together and use the resources and the networks available to us? So if we sort of shift back to the collegiate athlete, right? I think when we think about those resources and networks, you've got a bigger platform than most people being a collegiate athlete, right? The example that you set, you've got younger athletes, um, people from your hometown that look up to you, uh, people that are gonna see what you do and, and model the behavior. So a lot of the work that we do at RISE when we think about um, sort of athletes and the platform that they have, it's really, how do we all become better at some of this stuff? But how do we then recognize the platform that we're on, the eyes that might be on us and how our simple actions um, can be more influential based upon sort of this athletic platform that, that we've been provided with. I think that's such a great point. And, and, and that leads me into is the work that you're doing every day with RISE and, and you're the curriculum director for RISE. Tell me about how you have developed that curriculum and how it's implemented around the country and how receptive are folks when you do this work? Oh, great question. Um, I would say, Interestingly enough, um, the curriculum that I, I, I develop at RISE, so RISE is a nonprofit. We've been around for about five years, um, and our mission is, is to use the sports space, right, to educate, we want to educate and empower those leaders in the sports community and improve race relations, right? And we do that by creating this interactive dynamic curriculum that takes sort of a more experiential approach 
to these conversations, right? So I just talked about educating yourself and knowing the concepts and the topics better. We do a lot of that, um, but we really start from an identity perspective and we start with the individual. Um, so the work that we do, we work with youth and teens as young as 13, um, all throughout high school. We work with uh, community organizations like police athletic leagues, boys and girls club. We work in the collegiate space. So I'm working with dozens of partners concurrently from the Big East Conference to Midwest Conference all across all divisions. Um, we work in pro sports, um, had conversations last year on bias and anti-racism with over half of the NFL, um, mm -hmm. as well as all NASCAR drivers, um, NHL teams, like really, really uh, sort of all encompassing. So anywhere where sports are played, we're doing some of the, having some of the dialogue around how we use this platform of sports, right? To create some racial equity. Um, getting into the curriculum more specifically, again, we start with this concept of identity, helping people realize who they are, how they see themselves, why they see themselves in the ways that they do, so that they can sort of take the skill of perspective taking, right? And, and, and look to see why others might see and experience the world in the ways that they do. So our curriculum is multifaceted. We've got dozens of modules on different topics, right? But as we think about topics, we also want to think about skills because we are a leadership development program and we want people that walk away from our curriculum to have skills like active listening, like perspective taking, like conflict resolution, like facilitation, right? Because it's not just about racial equity. That's our expertise, but we want leaders to take those skills and talk about gender equity. Think about that from, from, from uh, socioeconomic status, from a whole bunch of different lenses, right? Um, so we start off and, and, and just to narrow it down because we do work in so many different ways, I, I'll, I'll sort of hone in on how we work with collegiate institutions for the most part. Um, we start off with what we call the need assessments phase. Um, and it's like a five part, it's a five part, uh, five part process where we do two surveys, where we uh, do a campus climate survey for student athletes, um, do a similar one for staff. Right. Um, and so we get sort of a, a broad gauge of what folks feel about the campus climate, right, who they might go to or something to occur uh, in the space of DEI. Right. Um, and then we've got two sort of workshops on campus, again, one with student athletes, one with staff, where we take 90 minutes and we spend the first piece going into identity, thinking about that. Then we get into perspective taking. And then the last 30 minutes, we sort of ask student athletes and staff to think about what are some of the challenges that exist on their campuses around these issues, as well as then putting them in the driver's seat and saying, all right, how would you solve those challenges, right? Imagine that you have all the power, you've got the resources, you can do the scheduling, how would you solve those challenges so that they begin to even then in that first interaction with us, think about the roles that they might play, regardless of uh, what audience they're a part of. Um, and then from there, we sort of take the findings, how folks responded to, to, to our curriculum, et cetera, um, and then circle back with the institution and map out a plan that aligns with their strategic goals and, 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 and uh, objectives. Um, and what that typically looks like is then we think about our curriculum and identify ways in which we can insert some of that learning into the various spaces that occur in college. We already know that student athletes are, are maxed out in terms of time, right? Between being a student, between being an athlete, there's limited time. So how do we get some of this programming? At some institutions, right? Like at FSU, we have, there's a freshman, a first year student athlete orientation course where some RISE program is inserted there, right? So as they think about becoming a NOL, part of that is thinking about 
DEI, right? And understanding that this is an important part of their experience. Um, school, a school like MSU has an amazing kickoff event where they really celebrate diversity and really start this conversation of, of cross-cultural dialogue from the time they set foot on campus, right? So whether we're gonna ha have a seminar that's a one-off that's after practice, or we're gonna identify existing spaces, we really seek to figure out where it is that we can have these conversations and what we found is that because our because our curriculum is interactive, because it starts with sort of like a, a me-centric approach, it really brings people in, right? And it, it draws them into conversations that they typically would have a little bit more anxiety about, would be a little bit more stressed about. And what we find is our conversations are very often positive and productive, right? It does not mean that we don't challenge people and that it doesn't get uncomfortable, but we create a safe space for them to have this uncomfortable dialogue, realize that that's a pop, that that's possible. People are like, wow, like the, the, the response is typically, can we do more of this? Well, we only have 90 minutes, can we keep this conversation going? So now the institutions that may have had some hesitancy around having this dialogue because of staff fatigue or student athlete fatigue, they now see stakeholders that are saying, hey, we, we wanna do something about racial equity. We realize there are things that we can do. How can we work with RISE or whoever else that might be to achieve some of these goals? So I, first for my listeners, DEI is diversity, equity, and inclusion, just in case you have not heard that, that um, uh, phrase before. Now, I have so many questions, but I want to ask you something. This is done within the context of the athletics program, correct? Yes. yes. All right. Now, let's take some of these large campuses like Michigan State or Ohio State. Those athletes are a large population, but they are a very small part of the, of the campus, so when those athletes leave the cocoon of the athletic department and go off into the campus, do you talk about strategies for that if the campus isn't responding in the same way? Yeah, so that is a great, so I, I love that you asked that follow-up question. So our, and going back to a little bit what I said around the platform that student athletes have, the way that, and even my sort of introduction to the space, right, when I was in grad school, I was talking about race and a lot of people didn't really pick up, they, they didn't seem concerned about the topics that I was bringing up or the, the angle that I was approaching, thinking about racial equity. Um, so I ended up shifting my dissertation topic to focusing on sports because after that uh, aforementioned study, right, about three to 400 news articles talked about the research that we did at University of Pennsylvania. And I realized, I said, you know what? People talk about these things a lot more quickly, right? If there's this sort of sport entree into it. Um, so with the athletes sort of leading the charge or having, having this dialogue, setting that example, right, bringing up these issues, you see a lot of others that may be reluctant, more quickly willing to talk about it. Um, so our goal really is to start that conversation within the athletic space and have athletes be those champions of change, but then take that again to their spheres of influence, right? Talk to students outside of the athletic department, have campus-wide conversations where athletes are on the panel. So if you've got the star point guard or, or quarterback for your school talking about this, right? We, we sort of see more people tune in and listen. And then after they sort of listen, you get more people that are sort of interested and continue to follow along the conversation. So the goal for us is really starting with the athletic department as being sort of a catalyst, right? And then allowing others that are watching because in, in, in these big time college athletic spaces, like eyes are on them frequently anyway, like why not sort of leverage that um, to, to talk about some of these social issues. And have you ever been invited back if, after you've given a, a workshop and, um, and maybe something happens on that campus or maybe even on a team 
Have you ever been invited back to sort of manage that that problem, or does that not occur? Yeah, so (laughs) that's an interesting one. I would say, uh, sadly enough, right? um, Prior to again last summer and the and the and the issues that have happened. a lot of our engagements with collegiate teams, et cetera, sort of stemmed from whether stated or not an issue that occurred, okay. right? So we, we have been since 2015 sort of been saying, knocking on doors, hey, let's be prepared to have these conversations. Let's be ready to talk about this in case something happens. And we found that a lot of people only came to us once something already happened after the fact. Um, so it, it has more often than not been in the reverse order um, but I think, again, as of last year and what we've seen, we've got a ton of institutions now that have, have just started engaging, up, engaging with us and, and since 2020 and have gone through several rounds of training, several rounds of programming, because now they sort of recognize the importance of it, the inevitability of some of these conversations. And now we're doing some of this work in, in, in deep and meaningful ways. Um, one institution that comes to mind, I'm, I'm not going to name them, but they had an, uh, they had an issue where uh, someone on, on one of their sort of high profile teams made a comment that was sort of racially, ethnically charged around immigration, et cetera. Um, and their AD had been meaning to have these conversations, but being an AD of color sort of was hesitant to because he didn't want it to seem like it was a, an issue that was only relevant to him or something that he cared about. But that incident created an impetus for him to, to respond. And they have done so much work over the past couple of years um, around building uh, committees around establishing structures that right so it's not just a student or ad who's passionate on that campus but they're now weaving some of this work into the fiber of campus overall um, and students are having much more fluid much more progressive uh, conversations around this stuff from their from the time they step onto campus until the time they graduate you know, it's such a good point about bringing it up about people who are hyphenated. Like I was a female AD or, or a white female or a black male AD. How t- that hyphen sometimes causes us to think for just a moment, do I advocate for this or not? Will people perceive that I'm doing it because I'm a woman or because I'm black? Yeah. But white male ADs don't, don't have that, that hang up. Any thoughts on that? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I, I, I was speaking, I spoke to what, three ADs in, in, in the past two days, um, and, and this has sort of come up in each of those conversations, right? Um, so I, I had a Black AD say to me yesterday, uh, Colin, that this was something that really made me hesitate, um, re- really made me think, and, and I had to be strategic or how, around how I approach this, but sort of after last, last year, like, I feel like I don't have to explain myself anymore. I, I feel like people now see this as being an issue. Um, The people seeing this as being real, I I have white male ADs or or just white ADs in general, predominantly male, right? We we know how those numbers go that that are now sort of saying, I feel guilty for not sort of championing these causes, not thinking about some of these things earlier and sooner. Um, and, and And they've called it out, they're like, Perhaps that's my privilege showing, right? Perhaps that not being a part of my experience um, created a blind spot for me where I didn't pay attention to or acknowledge or honor some of these challenges that 
my student athletes are dealing with, right? My female student athletes, my student athletes of color, those from different sexual orientation backgrounds, but anyone who may not fit into the mainstream and, and how do we sort of highlight and pay attention to and really acknowledge and, and make, create welcoming spaces for people regardless of, of what identity they, they, they may, uh, regardless of how they might identify. Yeah, that, that's such a great point. And it, it's something we could talk a long more about, but I really wanna shift now into another conversation, which is about the external focus of an athletic department who some of these division one programs have hundred million dollar plus budgets how they can do a better job of leveraging their wealth that's in their budgets to buy services and, and um, items from Black-owned businesses. We have a major problem with racial wealth gaps in this country. And I, I don't even think college athletic departments are realizing, let alone colleges, are realizing how much they could change this dynamic uh, you know, and by, by demonstrating that, hey, personally care, not just they're giving lip service to the, the movements that are out there, but personally being um, invested in trying to narrow that wealth gap. And you and I know college athletics is surrounded by companies who, have, who are offering products, but they, the companies have majority white C-suites, majority white governing boards, and or a majority white workforce each of who's making a lot of money off of serving black athletes. How can athletic departments find and hire national and local black owned businesses? Karen, I, 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 love, I, I love this question for so many reasons, um, but I would almost say that let's take a step back and before we get to external and how do we support black owned business externally what are we doing internally, right? So again, go, going back to some of the numbers, Power Five, Power Five football coaches on average earn 3.7 million annual, annual salaries, right? Head coaches at the basketball, 2.7 million. In these spaces, black men are only 11.9% of the head coaches. Power Five athletic directors on average, 707, $707,000 annually. Black men are 15.2% of athletic directors. The Power Five Conference Commissioner Directors, 2.5 million annually, none of them are black, right? So before we sort of say, and even when I talk about how do we do some of this work, we have to start internally, before we start to say, hey, we're gonna support these companies externally, what are we doing with the C-suite at the NCAA, at, 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 at the conference offices, right? Um, what are we doing about the representation on college campuses where these potential business owners will go to learn about how to run a business, how to even start a business, right? So I would say first, you gotta hire and promote as female ones within the ranks of our own organizations, right? That, that, that's step one, right? Empower black and brown student athletes to be leaders in the sports industry because we know less than 10% of them are going to be going pro. So how do we make sure the ones that are on campus that even start there, right, are empowered to run businesses after, empowered to work in the industry to do things that use their sort of sports expertise and knowledge, but also make it worthwhile, right? We have so many limitations around internships and entrepreneurial opportunities for student athletes, right? By not allowing them to have ownership of, of their own likenesses and images, we're removing a, a potential like real life, uh, uh, like capstone project, right? How do you market yourself? Like we, we really sort of handicap 
so many folks from doing the things that can help them learn these principles and, 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 and do some of this work by not thinking about it holistically. And we talk about some of that um, in the miseducation of the student athlete, right? How do we think about making these experiences and using, using these as times to really help build a, a cadre of individuals who can do this work, who can run these businesses and open up their eyes to the prospect of not just playing pro, right? What, what, what else does it mean to be in the sport industry? Where else is this money flowing? Um, can I work in a network? Can I think about manufacturing, right? Can, can I think about apparel and goods, et cetera? Um, and I think if we diversify sort of the NCAA, the conferences, et cetera, I think some of that stuff is gonna happen naturally because a lot of business relationships come from pre-existing ones, right? So a lot of times people don't even know who black owned or where they can identify black owned companies. I've, I've got white colleagues who say, hey, Colin, like, I, I, like whispered, I, I want to support some black owned businesses, but I, I don't really know any or where to go, right? If you've got diverse people inside your organization, they're going to know some folks <laughs> that, that, that do some of this work, right? And it's easier to make some of those connections. So um, I, I think absolutely have to be more intentional, right? About hiring and working with um, and, and putting some of these dollars in, into black owned businesses but I think we also are missing an opportunity to help create, build, um, and, and diversify our own, our own organizations first, because then you have the ability to set the example and say to others, look at our C-suite. We, we'll work with you, and you can challenge other businesses to say, we'll work with you if and when you do more of the things that we're already doing, right? I don't want to be hypocrites in this space. Um, so I think about what the NBA did in, in Charlotte in 2017, right? Thinking about not supporting folks that don't align with your mission and with your goals, right? So if you have discriminatory laws on the books, then we're not gonna bring our, our, the millions of dollars that come along with our all-star game or all-star weekend to your city un until you sort of demonstrate that you have the capacity to be more equitable in some of your legislation. And we just saw that with Major League Baseball. Major League Baseball last week. Yep. Exactly, exactly. So couldn't agree more with your answer on that. I think the, the opportunity for student athletes to graduate with a sense that they can do more than just play a sport, that they can be branded entrepreneurs yeah. in this space and names, images, and likenesses can be a vehicle for that is something that'll be valuable for them the rest of their lives because they'll get comfortable at trying things and maybe they'll fail and maybe they'll succeed, but that's a really valuable skill. And, and successful business owners will tell you that they failed more times than they succeeded. And that's what led to their success was not was not stopping after the failure. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So um, you worked for some great organizations prior to coming to Rise. Any tidbits for senior leaders on campus about what you've learned about racial justice from those organizations? Um, I would say Tidbits, tidbits. I, I would say one of the things um, that I learned, I'd say particularly at my time at, at the NBA, working in social responsibility and player programs, as well as being really close to players um, at the Ravens, working in player engagement, um, is the value in listening to players, right? As well as recognizing um, that listening to them is not mutually exclusive from focusing on the bottom line, right? I, I think there's this sort of belief that, you know, focusing on player needs, like that that's one side of the house and then another side of the house is the bottom line. But I think 
Um, one of the things that Adam Silver and Mark Tatum, uh, as well as Kathy Barron's really sort of got really well was that paying attention to player issues and player concerns is a part of the big line because once that trust is built, once that rapport is built, right, decisions can be made more quickly, more efficiently. You can move as a unit, you can work as a team, as a league to achieve some of the goals that you have, right? And those can be around a number of things, but we've seen with social justice that players have been more willing to get on board with some of the decisions and some of the, 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 the initiatives, right? That the leagues are promoting because they've already demonstrated that care. They've provided the resources, the vehicles, the opportunities to do some of this work that players want to do in their communities, right? So even the ways in which we've seen the shift from sort of the, the generic philanthropy work that we have with the NBA cares to some of the things that they did when they started thinking about, well, how do we think about uh, investing in, in, in economic opportunities like we just talked about in the last question, right? How do we think about creating more equitable education experiences that lead to, uh, to, to career path and trajectory changes? Um, so I'd really say engaging uh, the players, taking what they think into account. Um, and, and then we also at RISE have these sort of five quick tenets to, for recommendations for, 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 uh, for college administrators at the highest level. Um, one, keep your finger on the pulse of campus, right? Have a sense of how student athletes and staff feel. Two, raise the level of knowledge around issues of race, diversity, and inclusion, right? So some of that knowledge building. Three, build structures that make DNI work pervasive and holistic, right? So it doesn't just leave when Karen, who's passionate, or Colin, who's passionate, graduates and moves on to a new role. Identify ways to support minority stakeholders specifically, right? So a lot of people can get lost in the margins if we're only thinking about the majority. So we got to think about gender, religious, racial, ethnic minorities and think about some of their unique challenges and acknowledge those, although they're not, again, the majority number. And then last but not least, create more spaces and opportunities for cross-cultural dialogue, right? A lot of this work starts with talking um, and, and we have to create the spaces for talking because again, people are so busy, it may not happen organically. So how do we sort of precipitate and foster an environment where some of these conversations can happen um, even if they're in non-traditional spaces? Yeah, Colin, such great advice. And you you know, for, for a young guy, you bring a wealth of experience to this conversation. It's just remarkable what you've accomplished since you left Penn. Um, Really pleased to have this conversation, and I hope it's uh, I hope it's one of uh, many that we're going to have in the future. And uh, thank you for giving us such great insight into how we can make these kinds of conversations happen on our campuses. Thank you so much, Karen. I, I really appreciate you uh, bringing me out for this. Um, was a little nervous, but this this was great. Uh, so happy to have this dialogue. You did great. You did great.